Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. Hey, everybody. Uh, good to see all of you. Um, I'm personally really excited about Alpha as well. We kind of had a break with COVID and didn't do any kind of um, Alpha stuff, and now we're going to be back to it. And we're really believing that this is one of uh, a myriad of ways for us to do evangelism here um, in Newburgh. And so um, you'll be, like Phil said, great job on that announcement, by the way, Phil. So beautifully said. Um, you'll be hearing more about it. Uh, I have a little title for my message today, and I don't always have a title for my sermons, but this one gets one. This, the title of the, today's message is this, A Tale of Two Realms. Too cheesy? All right, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, A Tale of Two Realms. Luke chapter 7, and this is the last story in Luke 7. We've been in Luke 7 for a while because it is a 50-verse chapter, um, but this is the final story in Luke 7, and it's a pretty dang good one. It's actually, without, any, without Andoni even knowing, he's already referenced it today. So, uh, yeah, just unity of the Holy Spirit. As you're turning there, I'm going to just pray over our time. God, what a privilege it is to be with your people. And we do declare together, it's so wonderful to hear the voices of the saints say, better is one day in your courts. Better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere. And we really mean it, Lord. I know so many people in this, in this room right now, their deepest desire is to see you clearly. Their deepest desire, whether they maybe even know it or not, is to know you. And so we just start from that place. Holy Spirit, would you reveal, would you reveal the Father to us today? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's read. Luke 7, verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who has had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this even who forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. This story is probably familiar to you, is it not? In fact, uh, this story shows up in all four of the gospel accounts. It's one of the rare stories that's in all four of them with some slight discrepancies between some of them, but the, the general premise of the story is there in all four accounts. And the message, I think, of this passage is somewhat easy to access. You know, if you look back on your life and you see all that you needed to be saved from, you will appreciate Jesus, you will love him even, more than if you are blinded by your own virtues, then you will be unable to see just how much you really needed God's action and intervention in your life. So perhaps as we read this passage today, the lesson would be, think about your testimony, Christians. Recall what you, what you were and what you could have been if it weren't for Jesus coming into your life. And this, doing that, that act is the foundation for what I want to speak about today. See, I want to talk about the emotional world of the redeemed. I want to talk about the emotional world of the redeemed. Jake even mentioned it already today. He's like, God, don't let our emotions keep us from from honoring and worshiping you and, and, and breaking our alabaster jar over you. So I want to ask you this question today. Do you feel saved? Emotionally, do you feel saved? See, typically, we say, run from your feelings. Deny your feelings. The heart is not a good master. It's deceitful, right? And there's a time for that message, but not now, because this passage challenges us with a full-blown emotional outburst of this woman and asks, what do you feel about Jesus? What do your emotions about Jesus reveal? You know, I once heard it said that your attitude is the best representation of your belief system. Your attitude is the best representation of what you believe. So are you grumpy? Are you in fear? Do you feel like you're just scraping by in life? Well, your emotions reveal. And that's what's happening here. We have two emotional responses from these characters. We have one emotional response of complete abandon, and you have one emotional response of management. Look at this woman in this passage. She's a mess. (laughs) She's crying. She's crying so much that Jesus considered it washing his feet with tears. You know, my mom told me at 13 that less is more when it comes to cologne, son. (laughs) But here is this woman 
breaking an entire bottle of perfume over Jesus' feet. What passion. What abandon. How awkward. <laughs> Can you imagine this happening at a dinner party today that you, you go to? There's just some random woman shows up and begins crying over your friend's feet. <laughs> and Simon has this completely different response to Jesus. He's thinking in his mind, how do I manage this situation happening in my own home? Look down your Bibles, verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, oh, jeez, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is that she is a sinner. If he only knew the life of this woman, which the text kind of infers, likely she was a prostitute, he would have managed this shocking display of emotion in a way that preserved his respectability. Letting this happen in my home, I mean, really. And here's what I want you to see. There is a respectability about Simon that dictates what he allows to be seen of himself. He's controlled and calculated, is he not? He thinks about what people are going to think about him. But the woman, she's raw, flinging the door of her life wide open. And what I want to say is this. This is a tale of two realms. The realm of abundance and the realm of lack. The realm of abundance and the realm of lack. Now, I use this word realm for a reason. Have you noticed that there's a little bit of a timeline problem when it comes to her salvation? Look down your Bibles, verse 47. Here's what Jesus says. He says, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven in the past, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven, little loves little. Okay, so she has been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But then watch verse 48. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. I thought she was already forgiven, as her great love had shown. But then he forgives her. In fact, he says at the end, he says, you know, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What's the timeline here? In fact, you know, as you read some of the more reformed commentators on this passage, they're, they're tangled around this, trying to explain how her love for God didn't earn her forgiveness. Okay, sure, I agree. But here's what I think is being described. Life with God is not linear. Life with God is about entering a realm where you didn't just get helped, saved, delivered, or healed once, but when you were baptized, what we're about to do today, when you were baptized into Christ, you entered an, an entirely new realm, a way of living where the abundance of God was accessible at all times, and it isn't linear. It's like your whole past and your whole future is covered with the abundance of grace. So you can't discern, was I forgiven first and then loved, or did I, was I loved and then I was forgiven and then I would? You begin to enter the realm where you can't discern the end from the beginning of God's grace for you. I think this is what Paul could mean when he says in Romans 8 verse 13, you are no longer in the realm of the flesh. The realm. 
you're in a different realm. It's about a new realm. See, you can live in the realm of awe of God's abundance and gratitude for his presence and forgiveness. And everywhere you look, when you're in that realm, you're gonna see gratitude, forgiveness, abundance repeating throughout your life. She is so open. She's overflowing because she's experienced more than she can contain. It's the realm of abundance. Or, as in Simon's case, you can live in the realm of lack. And many of us have been there. We know what this realm is like. Always acutely aware of what others might be thinking about you. That's lack. Distracted by distraction. Managing what's seen of you. Constantly calculating your worth and your place amongst the company that you're in. Because you believe, if you're in the realm of lack, here's the belief. You believe there is only so much favor to go around and there will only be a small number of winners. Lack. And what Jesus is saying to Simon is that, you know, Simon, <laughs> and maybe even to those maybe who, who stand and you look at the great displays of emotion in the middle of worship and think, what is wrong with them? You know, Simon, if you understood emotionally, what it's like to go from the realm of lack to the realm of abundance, you would understand why she's doing what she's doing. You know, the Jesus, Jesus uses the word uh, saved here, right? He's describing, if you understood what it was like to be saved, you would understand her emotions. Saved like a capsized fishing boat in freezing black water being seen by an F aircraft carrier. Saved like a man making one last attempt to gather his child from a burning home and succeeding. Saved. Jesus says this in verse 50. Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Being saved feels like going from one realm to the other. From the realm of lack to the realm of abundance, saved. And because I know, you know, many of you, you've had a lot of church. You've probably read this many times. And I know that time doles us to the emotions of being saved. And I know that in a room maybe even this size, there's some of you who you aren't saved. Your whole life is shaped by the realm of lack. What I want to do is I want to use a story to show you what it feels like to go from the realm of lack to the realm of abundance. I want to use a story. David Foster Wallace, a great author, he once wrote a short story about a man who commits suicide called Good Old Neon. In it, the fictional character who has committed suicide is looking back on his life and he's, he's summarizing why it was that he committed suicide as he looked back over the span of his entire life. And he essentially concludes the reason why he committed suicide, he's telling the reader, he's the narrator, he's, he's saying, you know, the reason why I did it was that I was a fraud. Meaning that he never really let anybody in, never fully. Never really let people see him for who he was. So he chronicles in the, in, in the short story, he chronicles all the times that he managed the opinions of others all the things that he really thought that he never told anybody about because he was afraid of them not responding to him the way that he needed them to respond to him. 
And it really drives him mad. In fact, as a child, he remembers being in Little League and he was monitoring his batting average to the degree that when he would uh, iron his jersey before a game, he couldn't even enjoy the smell the iron made like he used to because he was thinking about what will people think of me if I don't have this kind of batting average. He practically, at one point in the story, ruins his back trying to sit the stillest and the longest at yoga class as a young adult. Always managing his image. Never able to enjoy the present because he's always calculating what it would mean for his future image. And this story, you know, I, I, I read it a long time ago, but I reread it this week and it reminded me of Simon at the table. In fact, he, he recalls before he commits suicide that he had a dream. Here's what he says. In the dream, I'm sculpting an enormous marble or granite statue of myself. And when the statue is finally done, I put, a big, I put it up on a big bandstand and spend all my time polishing it and keeping birds from sitting on it or doing their business on it and cleaning up litter and keeping the grass neat all around the bandstand. And in the dream, I'm condemned to a whole life of being nothing but a sort of custodian to the statue. Then in the dream, all the people that he ever respected or ever was afraid of what they thought of him, they walk in front of the statue. His adopted sister, his yoga instructor, the girl he dated in high school, and her new fiance, they pass by and they spread a blanket to have a picnic in front of the statue. But no one ever looks at the statue. No one ever notices him and all the work that he's done. While they live for the drama of life, enjoying life, he lives for their witnessing of his life. The realm of lack. And this is why he says he kills himself. It wasn't the dream that made him kill himself. It was the reality the dream reflected, that he lived his whole life never really being known, always managing what people saw, and it shriveled him. To the point that because he couldn't admit the fraudulence, he couldn't really tell the truth about his evil thoughts, his good thoughts, and the most difficult thing to confess, as we all know, our unremarkableness, he concluded he had to end his life. This is the modern dilemma. This is the realm of lack today. He then essentially says, you know, everybody asks me. <laughs> it's kind of a witty story. Everybody asks me, what is it like to die? And he says, you already know what it's like because it's the feeling of never really being known. That's what it's like to die. Never really having someone or something take all of you and size you up and love you the same. He says, that's the feeling of death. He says this, he says, it's like we all have a universe inside ourselves but, and we want to show it to the people around us. We want to really be known. Anybody who's married, you know this. I, 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 you know a lot of me, but you don't know all of me. He says, it's like we have a universe inside us, but all we can ever show to one another is like people peering into us, like through a little keyhole in those old doorknobs. That's what we can see. And he's right, you know, the realm of lack is the realm of management, and it's the realm of death. David Foster Wallace concludes the story in a moment that looks awfully similar to repentance to me. He says this, of course you're a fraud. Of course what people see is never you. And of course you know this. And of course you try to manage what part they see if you know they will only see a part. But at the same time, it's why it feels so good to break down and cry in front of others or to laugh 
or to speak in tongues or chant in Bengali. It's not English anymore. It's not getting squeezed through a keyhole. And here's what Jesus is saying to the modern person, to you. He's saying, do you live in the realm of lack? Are you your own management, never really letting yourself be known because you're afraid that deep down your performance matters? Fling open your door to me. I don't see you through a keyhole. I want the whole of you. Jesus is saying, you don't have to manage, what, manage your image with me. You don't have to consider all the variables with me. You can wipe your tears on me, and I will take it as love. I'll treat it as anointing. See, that's what salvation is, isn't it? It's being fully known, the door flung wide open, total abandon before the Lord, being seen for what we are, all of the unimpressive and unexceptional parts of us, and being accepted, and being loved even. And when that happens in your life, when you have tasted that, you have entered the realm of abundance. What this story shows is that there is a realm where you lose control, and it's the greatest thing that could ever happen to you. The lie that so many of us believe, it's called, I call it the lie of project self, is that you are the best determiner of your own blessing. That what will really make you come to life is you being in control of your life and determining who sees you and how they see you and what your image is and what you get in this life. And what Jesus says in this passage is no, real life, the realm of abundance is revealed when you are abandoned to him, fully surrendered. I don't want to be in control anymore. This is about having such an experience of the abundance of God towards you that you even, yes, even you, have an emotional response. Even you could break down and cry at the love, at the knowing, at the forgiveness. So much so that you actually begin to look for the alabaster jars of your own life and break them over him. What can I give you? See, to all of us who we may resonate with Simon, look, there's no following Jesus and maintaining control. He just won't have it that way. And it's not because God demands control, I must be in control. No. It's just that he's so abundant, anybody who has ever really seen him will give up their control. No questions asked. And so if you want to maintain control in your life, if you want to hold on, you have reason to suspect that you have not experienced his love to the full. Because when you see what you were and you see what he has now made you, only a love sacrifice will make sense. You know, it says of this perfume in John 12 in his account that it caught, this perfume cost a year's wages. So, you know, on the low end, $40,000. I've never seen a $40,000 bottle of perfume, have you? Uh, that's expensive. And what does she do? This woman probably didn't have much money. You're worth everything. You're worth everything. What can I bring to you, Jesus, that could ever match the abundance of love you've shown to me? And Jesus is so rocked by this 
that he says, you know, everywhere that the gospel is preached, people are going to talk about what she did. <laughs> Guys, there's something about our sacrifice. You know, you come in, you come into church, and you, you want to get something, right? You come because you hope it's going to be beneficial to you somehow. Maybe there would be something interesting from the message. It'll help you solve this relational issue or this or that. Guys, I'm telling you, God has so much benefit, so much abundance for you. He, he wants to pour himself out on you. But you come in to this space with the mentality of this woman and you say, I don't, I've already, ex I've experienced you. I'm gonna recall it to mind. I'm gonna remember what you've done. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a sacrifice this side of heaven that I could never give you on the other side of heaven in the midst of my difficulty, in the midst of my pain. I'm gonna sacrifice and I'm gonna praise you because I'll never get an opportunity in heaven to, to go through pain, to go through turmoil, to have the temptation, to think maybe I shouldn't praise. But here I have that temptation, and so I'll give you the sacrifice of praising you, of worshiping you, of laying my life down before you. And it just rocks him. It just moves him. Guys, there's something about when we make a sacrifice to the Lord, when we surrender to him, when we give him a gift, there's something about it that just moves him. He's like, whenever somebody talks about the gospel, they're gonna talk about this. It just delights him so much. And so I have a question that I've been asking myself, you know, as I've been reading this passage. And here's the question. Am I spending time on things that move him? Or am I spending time on things that move me? Things that help my image. That I think, you know, they're good things. They're not bad things. But am I, is, the, is the pursuit of my life, the focus of my life, what can I give you that would move you? I want to give him a sacrifice that costs me something. You know, David says that. He's like, I can't give the Lord a sacrifice that doesn't cost me anything. Why? Because I want my life to reflect the realm that he's paid for. See, guys, Jesus has his own alabaster jar. The most expensive perfume the world has ever seen. His blood. We don't sacrifice for God because it's the right thing to do. You just should. You should do it. It's the right thing to do. No, we do it because it's what he's done for us. While we break our little alabaster jars of perfume over him and we anoint him with praise and with self-denial and walking in his ways and obedience, he broke something else over us, his body. And the perfume of his blood anointed us. And guys, it's in communion. It's why communion matters so much. It's in communion that we see that he was the woman at our meal. And while this earth never recognized us as sons and daughters of the Most High, it never washed us, it never honored us, he invites us to the meal to wash us and to anoint us with his blood. That's why we receive communion. That's why we give a sacrifice. Because he did it first. Let's stand. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.